Hello and a very warm welcome to the Trap One Podcast. I'm Mark. I am Jason. This time I am a guest rather than guest host. And I'm Eric, who is definitely a guest, not a guest host. Thank you very much for joining me, gentlemen. I'm delighted to be discussing Rob Shearman's novelization of his 2005 television story, Dalek, with you today. Having loosely adapted the story from his big finished story, Jubilee, he's now written a book adaptation of that adaptation. Before we start the discussion, please note for listeners, we'll be discussing this in great detail, including spoilers, so please be warned if you haven't read this one yet. Uh, Jason, was this a story that you enjoyed on television? Oh, I'll probably have to go out on a limb and say that it's my favorite from that season, because getting the episodes in spring 2005 in the United States, this is about a year before Sci-Fi Channel got the contract, it was difficult to come by. And uh, a particular not-quite-legal file-sharing service was in its infancy, and it would take me, uh, well, hypothetically, it would take the hypothetical person who was using the uh, not-quite-legal service several hours to get an episode. So I would watch, so starved was I for Doctor Who where I didn't already know the ending, I would watch each episode about four or five times. And I think of all the episodes, Dalek is probably the one that I watched the most just in those first three months. Uh, there was so much going for it. Number one, it was the return of the Daleks, and it was a really good script. And there's more, which I'll get into as we address the story point by point, but the Dalek was so well realized with the, the slightly but not too much amended costume and Nicholas Briggs as the voice. And then the rest of the plot was quite zippy, action-packed, uh, the American accents, of course, had me scratching my head a bit, but uh, we'll come to that later, too, I think. The American accents are much better in the book. <laughs> I, I've, it's grown on me over the years. I wasn't sure about it when it was first broadcast, um, but I, I was a callow youth then. Um, I thought I didn't really like the way that the Doctor reacts to the Dalek when they first meet. It felt really kind of undoctorish to have him freak out and react really fearfully and, and, and be begging to be let out of the room. I, I'm kind of used to the, the doctors just having a withering put down for the Dalek um, rather than, uh, you know, that kind of reaction, which they do quickly go back to with the 10th Doctor. Um, and it obviously makes sense in the context of the time war and everything else. Um, and then the other thing was having worked really hard to reestablish the Daleks, as you say, they're really well realized in this one. It ultimately gets defeated because a girl touched it, and I felt like that was a little bit of a step backwards. Um, but but bits and pieces that are uh, are addressed in here as well. And Eric, you and Cal recently covered this one on an episode of Doctor Who: The Writers' Room. We did indeed, yes. Uh, where um, we both come away, uh, I think, less enamored than fandom as a whole. Uh, part I think I think a lot of that honestly is down to the fact that we are. Both Kyle and I came to the show via the new series. Um, so, you know, and neither of us are sort of Dalek lovers. We started the show as adults, so we don't have any sort of childhood love of the Daleks. And so it's just sort of like, I mean, it's fine. Like, the 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 character stuff with the Doctor and Rose especially is, is interesting and good. We had a lot to say about that. A lot of the story as written on TV is, you know, uh, Dalek action sort of thing and we're just we're just not that interested in that fundamentally um 
And so it, you know, it sort of it does establish certainly a Dalek as a deadly killing machine, but it, it does that at great length, I think. Um, so, uh, you know, not certainly not our favorite of the season. I would say, you know, uh, middle third for me of the that first season. I would like to offer up a defense of Dalek as a Dalek story because. Um, opposite of Eric, I came to the show on PBS here in the States in the mid-80s, so Resurrection <laughs> of the Daleks was my first story. Uh, again, when you're a kid watching the Daleks, they're great, but as you're an adult watching your rapidly decaying VHS tapes 20 years later, the Daleks are poorly made balsa wood props, uh, Especially in the 1960s, they don't have the ability to actually do anything. So half of any uh, Perry Nation or David Whitaker era Dalek story involves Daleks standing around in a room talking to each other very slowly. So there's a very cheesy visual look to the classic series Daleks. And if you come to Classic Who as an adult or if you're watching those videotapes one too many times, the Daleks just aren't very convincing but because is the new this is the new series and because we now have digital effects and because we now have something resembling a budget that allows you to do a little more than just shoot three characters uh, in front of a drape in lime grove d dalek on tv when you watch the show all the way through makes the daleks kind of potent for the first time you have a Dalek prop that has metal bolts in it, so it actually looks like it's not just spray-painted balsa wood with Christmas tree lights housed inside ping-pong balls, which is, let's face it, what the TV props were. And this Dalek can do things we've never seen Daleks do before, and it can spin around, and it can kill thousands of people at once, and it can trigger the overhead sprinklers and electrocute the entire base. This Dalek on TV is probably the most frightening one that we've seen since the Dalek with the speech impediment in the chase. Uh, This actually restores horror to the monsters because it's the first time we're seeing them since 1988. It's the first time that the Dalek prop is actually convincing and scary and can actually do stuff rather than stand around and talk to the second prop from the right. At least that's my spirited defense of Dalek 2005. I, I think that's all completely correct. I think, and I think this is something we actually said in the writers' room. It's and by Rob Sherman in 2000, the TV episode is is a sort of justification and defense of his like child should be and never were on TV and things. But it is still fundamentally, if you come first Dalek story, Alien. Um, okay, we're more badassery for it just, it just does end up justifying instead of actually engaging the biggest mistake the story makes on tv is um the most interesting stuff for me in the story is the connection between rose and the doctor and the do- uh you you would let the woman you love die and all that sort of stuff and, and instead of really deep diving yeah because those scenes of like the Dalek killing people, they're, they're slow. <laughs> they take a lot of time with that build up and that and that and is wrong, Jason. I think it's just it's it's appealing to different audiences. Well, of course, it's not wrong. I I said I said it, so that makes it a thousand percent valid, and you will all bow down before me. But Eric, let me ask you a question. And uh, mm-hmm. Mark, I'm up. So Mark, I'll give you the show back in a minute. But Eric, I want to ask you, if you come to the new series 
and that's your first exposure to Doctor Who. Your very first monster is an enormous, oversized, <laughs> comical blob sitting in the mm-hmm. bottom of a sewer. Uh, your second monster is well, you have the menagerie of different funny-looking aliens in uh, End of the World, but then you have the Slavine who. It's hard to convince anybody that the Slavine are, you know, uh, scary, um, interesting science fiction monsters. And the Daleks, compared to the Slavine, if you're watching the show from 2005 for the first time, you get two weeks of the Slavine, then you get the Daleks. How did they compare? Wouldn't you have found the Daleks much more interesting and convincing and realistic than whatever the Slavine were? supposed to be my my hot take and i i was not a child in 2005 far from it um but like i think the you you mentioned the nesting consciousness in episode one but really the the scary part is the mannequins which are quite effective uh in rose so those those are good monster great monster taken straight from terror of the autons um i think that uh the gelf which you skipped over like the sort of spooky ghost people, that's always good for you know a nice little scare. I uh, and and anecdotally, from what I have heard and seen, and and based on sales of toys and stuff, kids like the Slavine. <laughs> like we can all laugh at them and and mock them for the ropey CGI and the and whatnot. But those suits are very effective. Having watched that story, the suits are actually quite effective, even if they make them look a bit slow and dumpy. Um, and uh, I think they were more effective for kids than we give them credit for. I, as an adult, I would say far and away the the best alien so far in season one is the Dalek, like straight up. Uh, but then you have coming immediately after that or shortly thereafter that you have in Father's Day, you have the chronovores or time dinosaurs, whatever you want to call them. They're quite effective and scary. And the scariest monster in season one is the empty child, I think. So – you come, you look at it just in sort of a not knowing the Daleks are the Daleks. And I think you just look at it straight ahead. The Dalek, yeah, definitely stands out as a nice prop and it's shot well and all that sort of stuff. But if you don't have the sort of background with it where you you recognize that this is maybe the first time it's been done really well and they've had the money to make it look great and the way it should look and the way it always looked in kids' imaginations, it I don't know that it necessarily stands out. My way of, by way of saying that, I would think if if the Daleks hadn't been already a sensation starting from 1963 and they just showed up in 2005, I don't know that they would have caught on the same way. I think they would have been just another monster in the series. That's just my just my feeling. Hard, obviously impossible to prove. Let me ask you another question then. And uh, Mark, mm-hmm. just stand by for a minute. I apologize again. So, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I am guest hosting after all. So, so Eric, if you look at season two, uh, which comes out the very next year, the Slavine don't come back. They were replaced by uh, the Ood. And we mm. don't see the Gelt again. And we don't see the Reapers again. And we don't see that thing hanging from the ceiling, drooling on Simon Pegg, whose That's name I can't terrible. remember. And I'm vamping. Yeah, the Jagrafest. Yeah. yeah. The only season one monsters that repeat in season two are the Daleks and in a pretty prominent way. Does that speak to the Daleks having grabbed the public's consciousness in 2005, or does that just speak to they wanted a returning monster and the Daleks are the most famous monsters the series 
had ever produced, and that's why they came back in season two. My inclination is the latter, that uh, RGD grew up, you know, in Britain when he did and watched the show, and and the, the Doctor Who is inseparable from the Daleks and their British consciousness um, in, in every way, to the point where Daleks, like, you know, show up in skits and are jokes and political cartoons and whatnot, um, and everyone kind of can do the voice. It's, it's one of those things where they are inseparable when you come to 2005, but if you don't come to Dalek with all of that background and all of that baggage, I don't think you quite understand why that story in particular is taking so much effort to sort of glorify this one metal machine. Um, I'm not saying it's not, not effective for what it is, but it is... Um, like I think the Cybermen in season two are much scarier than the Daleks because they present a very different kind of threat to humanity. Uh, the Dalek in season one is sort of, it's just a, it's just a killing machine. It's just a killing machine. And they don't get a lot into what, you know, the doctor talks a little bit about it on screen about, you know, it hates anything that's not itself and blah, 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 blah. Um, but I, I don't know. And th- again, this is my purely subjective vibe and just from having, but like, I know that in addition to the Dalek toys selling, selling well, you know, the Sladeen arm things sold well and all of these <laughs> other things sold well. And, um, and some of those monsters you mentioned would be ridiculous to sort of try to bring back, uh, <laughs> even within the confines of Doctor Who, um, like to have the gal sort of show up again would be like, really, we you can do the gas monsters again. Um, but I, I do think it's largely like the Daleks are part of Doctor Who. And when RTD brought back Doctor Who, he very much kept it within the same universe. He could have done like, no, this is new Doctor Who and it's not the same show. And we're not bringing back the monsters and things, but it's very much with the same show. And, and, and just as uh, the TARDIS is part of Doctor Who and always has been and always will be, so are the Daleks. Um, and even if um, even if new viewers in 2005 watching just Dalek may or may not have that sort of shame shared collective consciousness, you know, they'd be watching with their parents and the parents would be like, oh, this is the Daleks. These are the good ones. You watch these, you know, and it's sort of you're going to get indoctrinated anyway, even if your natural inclination isn't to be, oh, look at this metal guy. He's scary. Don't you mean indoctrinated? <laughs> oh God, no, I don't, because I'm not that terrible of a human being to commit a war crime like that. That is awful. <laughs> well, as one censorite said to the other, I have never thought of that before. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine the cost of building the Dalek props probably fed into their reappearance in series two as well. Probably, but I, I will just say, like, it, it is clear that RTD always had the idea that the Daleks would be, you know, they're the enemies of the Time War. Um, which was a conscious decision he made before the show was even probably on air that the Daleks would be the great enemies of Gallifrey and the great enemies of the Doctor. Um, uh, That was the correct decision culturally, I think, but I don't think it was necessity from the jump. He could have done something else, I think. I suppose in terms of of, of trying to reestablish them as well, like you say, they... Their reputation at this point is they've been in in sort of Kit Kat adverts and and uh, Spike Milligan skits and things like that, but they are also even for a new viewer having to uh, kind of counter their own appearance as well. Uh, much as they they look much more metallic and menacing now, they do still have a sink plunger. 
they are still sort of like pepper pot shaped and and uh, all the rest of it. There is the assumption that they would be defeated by stairs and all, and all this is in the book as well, isn't it? That uh, mm-hmm. that even even a new viewer because they they sort of had to keep the basic shape for the people who had the childhood memories of of the Daleks. So you could you can't stray too far from that, but they are inherently ridiculous. So part of the the build up of them as a very deadly threat has to. Uh, in a way, take into account that they don't necessarily look that threatening on the face of it. And in defense of the sink plunger, Dalek in the TV <laughs> episode leans into that, and it <clears> actually <throat> shows that the plunger has real utility, and it uh, plunges a guy's face to death. So it doesn't just hide from the plunger, it kind of embraces it. Yeah. Which is why I think, again, like I think... Shearman wrote a lot of the stuff he writes into Dalek as a way of uh, of justifying sort of um, in the sense of like a justification, like the the his what the Daleks always were in the popular imagination, which was sort of the sort of jokey thing. You can't go upstairs as opposed to what the Daleks were for Doctor Who fans, where they were the most fearsome warriors and the greatest this and the greatest that um and dalek is definitely the first time we're on screen we see we really 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 see how awful the daleks can be where this one can create the sort of destruction that is um but just the choice of doing that so much screams see the daleks really are very cool and i was right and you were wrong (laughs) um so one of the things about the, the new target books for the new series adventures from this latest crop has been um, the diff- different ways that they've expanded the stories. So the Crimson Horror is the first half of the book is an entirely new Doctor Who story with the same characters. And then the Witchfinders has a framing device, which has one of the one of the characters back for sort of an adventure that, that takes place um, a little while after the Witchfinders. And then with this one, we have sort of alternating chapters of the story and these sort of vignettes, which which massively expand the backstories of the characters uh, that we see on the screen. And that was one of your complaints on the writer's room, Eric, was the sort of lack of characterization of, uh, mm. sort of Adam and Van Staten. So uh, was that an improvement for you? I like that he tried. Um, so my, my, my general, my general take from a lot of the characterizations, um, not all of them, I think some of them are very effective. Um, a lot of them just feel very rote or, or just utterly unbelievable. Van Staten is a really good example of that, where I'm just like, I read about Van Staten's background. I'm like, this is, what is this? This is some awful dark fairy tale, um, Nothing about it resembles actual human behavior um, as as understood. And that doesn't mean it's inappropriate or wrong, but it just felt very strange to to try to humanize Van Staten, quote unquote, by having him be this neglected son of a wealthy billionaire who never sees him and leaves him in the care of tutors and where it's inappropriate to own a telescope for like all of this stuff that's put <laughs> into his backstory. Um is just is just it's just weird to me and and he's doing a thing. Shearman is doing a thing 100% by unifying sort of giving both Van Staten and the Dalek itself these sort of very weird lost little boy backstories. Um, I just I just don't think they're necessarily effective. Um, I think um, I think some of the other backstories are 
more effective. I've forgotten her name, but the female guard, the Israeli one, the one who dies. Maya Klein. Maya Klein. Yeah, Maya Klein. Hold on a minute. We just both pronounced each of her first and last names entirely differently. (laughs) I I, I said said Maya Klein, and Mark said Maya Klein. Now, marketing back to when you guys did the recording for the Crimson Horror, and you spent 20 minutes trying to figure out how to say Gatiss, I think we have to do the same thing now. So... Klein is definitely pronounced Klein. I have relatives whose last name is Klein. We pronounce M-A-Y-A here in the States, Maya. Is it actually pronounced Maya over there? Because I don't think I knew that. Yeah, I would say Maya. I'd say uh, like Mayan, like like the Mayan calendar. We say Mayan Mayan calendar. Uh, Okay. (laughs) Um. So, and then in that case, Mark, here's a question for you. How do you pronounce the word G-O-D-D-A-R-D? Goddard. Eric, how do you, as, a, as, as an American uh, by birth, how do you pronounce G-O-D-D-A-R-D? Goddard. Uh, same here, Goddard. So Goddard. Yeah. The, the biggest problem that I had with Dalek on TV was the American accents. When she goes around saying Goddard, I'm like, nobody says Goddard. It's Goddard. It's the only way to pronounce it. And Maya Klein was not, as far as I can recollect, actually on television. So we haven't had this on-screen pronunciation debate. Yeah, certainly never said her name. She is there, and she is um, the most interesting of the guards in that she does have a brief moment um, in the TV story where they're running from the Dalek. And she tells Adam and Rose to run, and Rose is like, you're going to be killed. And essentially she said, I have to try. And it's a really lovely little moment where you get a sense of this woman knowing that this is going to be ineffective, but that she she has been told to protect these two people, and she's going to sacrifice herself, even if it only slows the Dalek down by two seconds. Um, and her backstory that we get in the novel of her having been in the Israeli army and her husband having first been recruited, but him being rejected for having told her about it, but then she gets recruited and she, it's actually quite, it makes, uh, it does what backstories are supposed to do in books, which is sort of invest you emotionally in the character. So when she inevitably dies, you feel, you feel sad for her. You feel sad for the, I think it's a son she has at home or certainly her child. And you feel that this was a, a good life that was wasted uh, and destroyed by sort of Van Staten's arrogance and Rose's stupidity and touching alien stuff and, you know, all the other sort of factors that are going on in the book. Um, So that one I liked. Um, But most of the backstory sections I found either ridiculous or absurd or very cliched. The one for the torture I just found so obnoxious and read so much like, a first draft of someone's college writing workshop paper about, you know, oh, there's an itch in my head and it makes me kill people. I was like, ah, for God's sakes. That is not how sociopathy works. I think the the, the Maya Klein one, um, if I can say Maya Klein, which is a hybrid of (laughs) two pronunciations, that one really (laughs) reminded me of, uh, you know, in Austin Powers, the the uh, the bit where the nobody ever thinks of the families of the uh mm. soldiers in, in evil billionaires private armies um mm. because austin powers kills somebody and then you go and find out that he's got like a wife and a stepson and <laughs> yeah uh, and austin powers has killed him out of hand 
But yeah. Uh, yeah, I think the the interesting thing with these, you, you touched on this, Eric, that there's um, the similarity between the, the childhoods in inverted commas of, of the Dalek creature and Van Staten. I think all the characters that we get the backstories here are make up elements of the Dalek because you've got Adam's backstory where he spent a year as a child choosing not to speak, which is it's just yeah. a Dalek sort of choosing not to speak, uh, and he's he's made out to be a genius, which um, which is in the dialogue the. The, the doctor says that Dalek's a genius. He can calculate a thousand billion combinations in a second flat and things. The uh, the Maya Klein one is like the soldier element of the Dalek. The mm-hmm. they're just sort of taking refuge in orders and and, and awaiting orders and things and, and trying to push everything else out of their mind. So I thought that was uh, that was a really interesting element of it. And they're all named like the Canterbury Tales, aren't they? You've got like the Torturous Tale, the Collector's Tale. Mm-hmm. The Soldier's Tale. So, The Canterbury Tales was a TV series with uh, Billy Piper in it that was later novelized by Geoffrey Chaucer. Geoffrey <laughs> Chaucer, please. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I pronounce it Geoffrey, but my last name is Miller, and uh, The Miller's Tale will be the title of my autobiography, not coming soon from a self publisher near you. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's, it's, I mean, it's very literary what he's doing, and I, I, enjoyed the attempt a lot more than I enjoyed the execution, I suppose. Um, I like the fact that he did take the time to try to invest all of these, these people with sort of something resembling um, uh, real, I was going to say it was something resembling realism, but that's the problem is a lot of them I found tremendously unrealistic and, and the story on TV, one of the strengths is that it feels very grounded and it feels very real, even though I had a lot of questions about, you know, sort of the nature of Van Staten's wealth and his compound and stuff. It still, it, it still prides itself on being like, it's, it's pretty, you know, realistic feeling. It's not some sort of fantastical thing. Whereas then when you get these sort of very outlandish backstories for some of the characters, um, Van Staten is a good example. I just, it, it sort of pushed me out of it. It was interesting that none of them had a, any sort of science fiction element to their backstories. They were, mm-hmm. although sort of heightened, they were pretty, pretty real world. Whereas maybe elsewhere in the Russell T Davies series, you've got the character of Elton in Love and Monsters, whose uh, life is shaped by um, having experiences with the Autons and, and, and different creatures. Um, mm-hmm. And is it Adelaide? Is that the character? Is it Adelaide? Yeah, Doctor Adelaide yeah. Brooke. Um, so yeah, you, you you could have could have made sense of these characters sort of ending up working here in this alien museum. Uh, you know, if they'd met other sort of Doctor Who monsters, it would have been an opportunity to you know sort of put some other continuity in there. But they've all come from a fairly sort of real world uh, into this into this situation. Well, I want to talk then about the the meta nature of this adaptation, and then I'm going to build back to a point about uh, Rob Shearman. This is a novelization of a television script that was based on an audio play. So this is the third time that Shearman has told this story. Now, if it is 1987 and you are writing an adaptation of a 16-year-old TV serial, uh, like Ambassadors of Death, which came out as a novelization 16 years after after the TV serial, you have to do it faithfully, word for word. You can't miss anything. We are now writing in 2021. You don't need the novelization as a novelization anymore because 
instead of airing once and then going into the vault for 30 years, you can watch Dalek at the touch of a switch anytime you want. I have my original 2005 version of Dalek on this very hard drive that you can see in front of the camera right now. And then I have HBO Max open in the next browser tab over. I could be watching Dalek in 45 seconds if I wanted to, but then, of course, I couldn't hear you guys. So you don't need, number one, a novelization of Dalek because it's there. And number two, you don't need a novelization of Dalek because it's there twice. You have both the TV script and you have the original audio play. Now, in 1993, I think, when Francis Ford Coppola came out with Bram Stoker's Dracula, there is actually a novelization of Bram Stoker's Dracula by Francis Ford Coppola. Uh, He didn't write the novelization, but it's probably the worst thing that I've ever read four pages of out of the bookstore and then dropped. Uh, It's it's beyond obvious to say you don't need a novelization of Dracula because, uh, you know, in a sense, there already is one. Uh, So... It wouldn't make any sense to do this book just as a straight vanilla adaptation. And then the TARDIS landed underground, and then the doctor looked nostalgically at the Cybermen, and then he spittled over the camera when he saw a Dalek, and then this and then that. That's never what this book was going to be about. The, the new novelizations need to be somewhat artistic and experimental to justify their own existence, he said somewhat pretentiously. So that gets into what kind of writer is Rob Shearman. I will admit I have not spent as much time as I should have going into his back catalog. I'm not really a big Finnish guy. I've never heard Jubilee. I know Rob Shearman primarily from running through corridors, where he is hilarious, he is very funny, everything he says is a poetic point and funny at the same time. I was not aware that Shearman as a writer specializes in the absurdist, and I know this now thanks to Wikipedia. So this is exactly writing this kind of absurdist book, which is sort of heightened at a remove from reality, this is what Rob Shearman does. And if he's going to write an artistic novelization of his own TV script, which he's already adapted once before, he's not going to be doing the straight-up vanilla novelizing the camera script and making the occasional uh, joke like Terrence Dix did. He has to start from scratch. So, yes, this is traditional in the sense that there are 12 numbered chapters because every Target novelization had 12 chapters. So he's paying attention to... uh, the form, but he's then going out and doing his own thing with all the Chaucerian interludes. And then, of course, you have the opening and the epilogue, which are the exact same thing, but it's two different characters living that experience, uh, bringing it full circle. So the book needs to be the way that it is to justify its own existence. And this is the kind of fiction that Shearman writes. So I think, in a sense, this is him doing what he does, and this is his particular niche of fiction. Now, some of the interlude chapters, the Chaucerian stuff, work better than others, but as I was reading the book, I was really, really impressed with it, and especially the Maya client chapter, which is my favorite chapter out of the book, and then the way that the epilogue harkens back to the prologue, uh, I was... 
I can't say I loved it because it's not a very warm and cuddly book, but I enjoyed it and I appreciated it. And I think it's much better than had this been written in 1987 and it was a straightforward adaptation of the camera script. That's 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 I would I would I would not argue with that in the least. But this is remember this is the second round of modern target novelization. We've already had. Um, you know, RTD rewriting Rose, and we've already had uh, Stephen Moffat rewriting Day of the Doctor, which I was on this podcast talking about a couple years ago, and which is a phenomenal novel that if it might be better than the show, which is high bar indeed, because that's my favorite episode of Doctor Who ever. Um, I, 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 you're entirely right. This this is what uh, Rob Shearman writes like. I have listened to his big finish. You know, he wrote Chimes of Midnight, which is a really great story. By the way, Dalek has as much connection with Jubilee as uh, as you know I do with a water bug. Like, there's some shared DNA <laughs> in the background, but the manifestation is almost completely different in every way. Jubilee or is as a you very will, different story. Or as the Francis Ford Coppola Bram Stoker's Dracula novelization <laughs> has to do with Dracula. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's like, yeah, he did sort of get inspired by certain. Essentially, the idea was that it was a lone, a lone Dalek was sort of the main thing he took away from Jubilee to do for Dalek. Um, I, and I don't disagree that it's sort of Sherman doing Sherman. I just, I don't think his Shermaniness um, um, heightened the story in a way that I found interesting. I think, um, I think often it felt as. You know, as I was saying sort of before we started recording it, like the, the torturer's tale, the sort of background of the, the one we see torturing the Dalek um, felt very cliche and had a very primitive, if, if it, I can find a better word, uh, sort of uh, description and or understanding of why someone might find themselves in that line of work. Whereas I think it's much more chilling if it's just someone who doesn't view this alien as worth treating as a human being like not everyone to get really dark for a second not everyone in abu Ghraib felt an itch in their mind telling them to torture human beings that's the sort of scary thing about human evil is it's not that humans are evil or good it's that good people or seemingly otherwise good people can and do horrible things that's much more interesting to me than this kid was born with an itch in his brain telling him to hurt puppies which is what we, which is what we got. It's kind of in the torturer's tale, essentially, and it's fine. If you take the absolute value of the words in that chapter, yes, you are correct. But as Mark points out, he's not actually telling the torturer's tale because he has an idea that evil is caused by an itch in your head. As Mark says, every one of the characters in the interludes represents a facet of Dalek personality. The Dalek is literally coded into its DNA that it must kill. So when a Dalek wakes up in its birthing tank, it has the itch in his head saying, you must exterminate, exterminate. So the character is there to represent a portion of the Dalek rather than just being a short story about a sociopath who doesn't behave like any real sociopath. I think that justification that Mark gives us is kind of the key to unlocking the novel. And to delve back into my Censorite impression a second time, I had never thought of that before. <laughs> See, whereas I, I think Mark is entirely right that that's what he, he's doing. I just don't think it's a good idea, and I don't think it works very well. 
Um, I think I think if you um, which which interesting about Dalek on TV is this Dalek gets humanized by Rose. That is the thing that is interesting, and it does not know how to process these human emotions. What is this thing called love? That's sort of the whole shit. Right? <laughs> um, and and its mind gets opened up, and it cannot handle it, and so it destroys itself at the end. Um, it becomes more human. The Doctor becomes Dalekified by this encounter, and they sort of meet in the middle, and Rose's Rose defends the Dalek against the doctor trying to kill it. That's that's the sort of emotional thrust of story on TV. When you give the Dalek this bonkers to me backstory about like every Dalek is born with the memory of some little boy with a balloon on a hill and they all want to, and they're looking at their squad commander and thinking the word daddy or father. I'm like, what are you doing, Rob? Because then it sort of puts the DNA of them supposed to be human like or or something humanoid or or having those sort of emotions instead of them starting evil and rose being the thing that um, awakens it it's or sort of mutates it to use a better word it's sort of already there built into the dalek and rose just sort of pushes that side to be a bit more dominant it really fundamentally alters i think the dramatic arc of the story and i don't think it was the right call Obviously, people will disagree, but I think it's inferior version of the same story in terms of the Dalek's personality and the evolution it takes over the course of the story. I found that I had much more sympathy for the Dalek in the book than in the in the TV series, uh, in the TV episode, where it, it does evoke sympathy. But I think the idea that it is basically still a child uh, with a child's understanding of the world and it's um it's, it's this idea that well i thought if i just followed orders then everything would be okay and now that it doesn't have any orders or any structure to its life it's uh, it, it's quite sort of bereft i thought that was that that pulled at my heartstrings more so than the the sort of the lonely dalek on tv kind of idea um and i think that's something in the complete history that that um rob shim talked about writing it his idea was that the daleks are like just horrible children, um, basically, or children. Um, so uh, it's uh, that 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 made me that that made me give me gave me more sympathy for it. Um, and then what you're saying about Rose there as well, I think one of the other common threads through the the backstories is it's people who struggle to connect or um, communicate with other people. Um, so you've got Adam who was a child, but he chooses not to speak to his parents or anybody for a year. Um, you've got Maya Klein, the, the, when she goes back from Utah to visit her family, she, she struggles to communicate with the rest of her family. Uh, it talks about the two guards, uh, one of them's Bywater, it's Bywater and Klein actually, isn't it, who guard the cage, and it, it talks mm-hmm. about how they, they didn't have enough curiosity to get to know each other, so they didn't know how much they would hate each other, mm-hmm. uh, so ended up getting on quite well. And And all through this, and even right at the beginning of the book rose talks about how she's got she believes she knows the doctor really really well and up until that point he's been traveling for a number of years and not without a companion and and not really uh, making a connection with anybody so it's, it's sort of rose is the common element who's who's come into this uh having um brought the doctor to where he is now and gets the dalek to open up both figurative figuratively and literally yeah. No, I think that's right. And I think I just wish then that we would have actually had more of Rose herself, because that's the thing. By spending all this time with these ancillary characters, um, 
uh, it, it does flesh them out a bit. But fundamentally, at the end of the day, the people I care about are Rose and the Doctor, to a lesser extent, the Dalek, to a still lesser extent, Adam and Van Staten and Goddard <laughs> and people like that. Um, and by by giving all of these other characters their sort of moment to shine, it diminishes the light coming off the Doctor and Rose, especially the Doctor, but also Rose as well, I think. Um yeah, it's a really it is not uh, you're entirely right, Jason, when you say that it is sort of a different version of the same story. It is he is not just sort of adapting the television script. And I wouldn't want him to do that. That would be a, a waste of paper. Um, but almost every choice he makes that's different, I think, is an inferior choice. I mean, there's very few things that he does differently in the book that I think, oh, that's actually better than what happens in the, in the TV show. Um, and I don't think the TV story is great. So like I'm, I'm starting out of a sort of middling place. And then this book comes in and kind of ducks below that bar for me. Um, I think, I think you're right that he's, Schumann is a very gifted writer. And so he's sort of naturally making these sort of connections and he's very consciously doing these sort of parallelism and these sort of dimensionalities and things. Uh, but like, I fundamentally disagree that the Daleks should be like little kids. I think the Daleks are alien. And if they make them just like humans and ch- human children, we lose something important about the fact that aliens are not just people in costumes. And I think far too often sci-fi writers just make aliens people in costumes, essentially. And I, I don't think that's a good way to approach the Daleks. I like the Daleks being alien. They think different. They are different. They are not just us. There's something else. I like that about them. If they're just angry little kids in, in – uh, in Pepper Potts, a word no American has ever said, by the way. Um, <laughs> what uh, do you call Pepper Potts? It's a pepper shaker. It's a salt and pepper shaker. <laughs> uh, and it's sort of bizarre to me. I don't know why it's not a salt shaker when it's a Pepper Pot, but there it is. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's he's making a lot of interesting choices. I just I just don't like almost any of them. <laughs> it's, it was a really weird experience reading this book and and seeing what he was doing and just constantly being like, no, mm, I don't like that. It's weird. All right. My mission then for the rest of this recording is to try and find out if there was any part of the changes made for <laughs> the novelization that Eric likes. So on television, it is often talked about. It is never seen. It is this device that Van Staten has that will wipe your memory. And it's used a couple of times, and then, of course, at the end, it's used on Van Staten himself, and Goddard Goddard suddenly turns out to be just as evil, and she orders his mind wiped, and she orders him dumped on the streets of uh, Vancouver or any city that begins with a V. It's it's something beginning with S. Sacramento, San San Diego, something beginning with S, yeah. I I was trying to think of V cities on the fly, and after Vancouver, my mind (laughs) dried up, so... That's probably why they went with S rather than V. Yeah. They could have done H for Henry. Yeah. H, or Halifax, or uh, Helsinki, or. <laughs> <laughs> but I digress. So we know that Van Staten has this mind wide power. The book goes into detail as to where he gets the power from and what it actually does to somebody whose mind is wiped. <clears throat> and we see it in the Adam chapter. And then. Uh, at the end of the book, Van Staten ends up almost voluntarily using the device against himself. And it's a mm-hmm. grotesque image, and it's an image that 
sticks with you. And that I think is an alteration from the TV script that works better than this just random power that he's acquired on TV to the extent that when you get to the very epilogue of the book, which is the boy flying a kite on the hill, my reading of that chapter is that is now Van Staten because of what the mind wipe has done to him. So that's part of the book that really worked for me just in a sense that it scarred a little portion of my brain and I'll never be able to get those images out of my head. Uh, Eric, did that part of the book work for you? Was there any part of the absurdist uh, storytelling that is going to stay with you over the coming weeks and months and years? Um, I no. Um, I mean, the, the the imagery is the imagery is potent. I don't I don't deny that. Like the image of Van Staten having used this sort of ball with the tendrils coming out of it, that sort of reminded me of the spiders actually in End of the World. This sort of like a silver ball with the tendril coming out. Um, that sort of uh, image is nice, and the image of Van Staten, you know, drooling on himself and Goddard trying to trying to clean him up after he sort of wipes his own brain everything from it so he, he regresses to a baby um uh that's you know it, it's an interesting image i don't think it's better than what we got in tv because one of the things i like about van satin on tv which is i don't actually like Van that much on tv but i think i do like about him is that he's fairly unrepentant um and he's he's kind of shocked that all of this is going to come back to haunt him um and he's going to be held accountable for it uh, because that strikes to me, that strikes me as genuine for someone who's a billionaire, is that they are shocked that in the end they are going to be held accountable for their actions. Um, him having the sort of self-awareness of wanting to, it, and it gets all tied in with the sort of the daddy issues that are so pervasive in this book. And I'm oh, God, I'm over daddy issues, um, and the sort of him wanting to sort of regress. Um, it, it it just. I didn't think it was a better choice. Um, it was a different choice, and it was a, it was an interesting decision to give that choice instead of having it be. Uh, but I always find uh, the bad guy uh, commits suicide, which essentially is what we have here. He commits personality suicide over. I always find that to be lesser than the bad guy gets punished for their crimes. I think I think the bad guy takes the noble way out is nonsense. <laughs> I, I kind of, I don't like how many stories sort of go that route. And I'd rather see the bad guy gets held accountable for their crimes in a court of law. I, I like that option. <laughs> so let's circle back then to Van Staten. It is 2005, probably recorded in 2004. You have a show that is not yet established. You have a show that cannot even get an American distribution contract the best you can do for an American actor to play Van Staten is, uh, let's be honest, Corey Johnson is not really up there on the Mount Rushmore of American mm -hmm. actors, and he doesn't really give much reality to Van Staten's line readings. If Dalek had been made in 2009, when the show had some cachet, they would have been able to get a big-name American actor who could have done a proper job. So Van Staten, as played on TV, bears no relation to humanity just because of the acting level involved. <laughs> and also, to use an obscure American cultural reference, the way Van Staten appears on TV with, 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 with the beard, 
he is the identical clone of American sports talk radio slash TV host Jim Rome, who I was listening to a lot of at the time. And it is kind of disturbed because I expected Van Staten to break into a sports radio talk show the way that Jim Rome does. And he doesn't. He's just a jobbing actor who's not really that good. So Van Staten on TV just doesn't quite work, not through Mm – really the fault of Rob Shearman because of the production. It then makes a sort of perverse sense in the novelization to have a character who has no real link to humanity and is just, you know, totally awful because in a way that sort of matches back to the acting, which does not emote in any way that any proper actor quote unquote uh, would have done. And if Corey Johnson listening to this, my apologies. (laughs) (laughs) He's physically different in the book, isn't there? They describe him as dainty, and and uh, the, the description of him seems seems quite different. He's much more, I think, meant to be um, in the book, sort of much more the sort of the the image of a tech billionaire sort of vibe, uh, more you know Elon Musky or something, as opposed to the sort of rather comparatively barrel-chested and broad-shouldered version we get on TV. Um, I it it is it it is I think almost every major character gets completely revised. Van Staten is not the Van Staten we see on TV. Adam is completely different from the Adam we see on TV. If if you were writing if you were looking at this book and then thinking what actor should I get to play that Bruno Langley is like choice on billion like there's no <laughs> way you go near Bruno Langley. Um, <laughs> Uh, Goddard, of course, gets completely revised as actually being a secret agent for uh, the FBI, which she feels like a bad ripoff of Clarice Starling, to be honest with me, is kind of what the vibe she's talking about there. Um, all of this sort of everything, uh, it, it's not just fleshed out, it's revised um, in ways. Um, and and it's really, it's like I said, it's an interesting choice for Rob to have done it. I, I know him a little bit, so I'm calling him Rob, which is not very nice to me because I'm not saying nice things about his book. Um, it's an interesting thing for Shearman to have done this so consistently where he's not just fleshing out. He's actually changing and altering our understanding uh, of the characters in this version. He's doing a, a really a very different approach um, when when he could have just sort of fleshed out, he could have just told us more about how Goddard became sort of the person working for Van Staten who happened to be there um, and had the line about, you know, Democrats are just so funny. Um, It's a good joke, Um, but it is not, um, there's nothing on TV that ever makes you say, Oh, actually she's a secret agent. (laughs) (laughs) It's such a, it's such an interesting Decision. I will say, actually, if Jason, if you're looking for the one thing I like, I do like the fact that in the book, the U.S. government exists and is aware of this billionaire doing all sorts of shady stuff. I like that because that's the only thing to me that feels realistic in the book, or at least more realistic than what we see on TV, is that the U.S. government exists. They're aware of Van Staten. They're aware of his influence, and they know that he's up to no good. And at least some sectors of the U.S. government are not happy with that, and they're trying to bring him down. That seemed correct to me. Not the president, though. I liked the depiction of the president sort of jumping around like a little puppy dog, although it is <laughs> ridiculous to imagine any president except Trump. Like, if you had <laughs> if you had written that passage, 
you know, when Obama was president, it would have felt wrong. In the era of Trump, you're like, yeah, that's what Trump's like. Yeah, uh, yeah, that was uh, pretty much – that was the one part of the book that was not absurdist. Reality here in America <laughs> so far outstrips what any absurdist playwright could do uh, that it kind of defeats itself. I wonder slightly if they were trying to make um, a, a Trump analogy with Van Staten. There's, a, there's two or three times through the book where people say to him – Thank you for the opportunity, which I know that's like a frequently used catchphrase on the UK version of The Apprentice. I don't know if that was imported over from the American version with Donald Trump on. Apprentice first came out. Trump had not yet become a political fascist. And as a New Yorker who was living in a Trump-owned building at the time, Trump Mm -hmm. was always considered a joke here in New York. He was always considered a poser and – he had gone completely bankrupt, and he was rescued from obscurity and poverty by this TV producer named Mark Burnett. He was playing a character, a fictional character on The Apprentice who had no relation at all to the real Donald Trump because he was successful and had friends on TV. I loved <laughs> The Apprentice, and I watched it for the next seven years all the way up to the moment when Trump came out as a birther fascist. Uh, so – yeah, that is how Trump acted on the TV show, which I now regret. That's seven years of my brain that I would like uh, wiped. <laughs> Maybe that advanced that mind wipe device is available for me. Um, yeah, I picked up a little bit on, on the Trump analogy, but now that Trump is temporarily out of office, he'll be reinstated, according to Maggie Haberman. Uh, <laughs> I think it is uh, – oh, I'm so sick of talking about Trump. <laughs> But, but but it's clear that Shearman, his depiction of the president is meant to be Donald Trump. Oh, clearly, um, clearly yes, clearly. it's clearly meant to be Donald Trump. It's it's not how you would have written the president in 2015, um, and it certainly makes no sense if you if you take the story still being set in 2000. Um, what year is it meant to be in the 2012? TV show? Isn't it? Yeah, 2012. Yeah. So that would have been uh, that would have been Obama. Obama's like, first term. Yeah, nothing nothing about that scene indicates that this president, this nameless president, is is Barack Obama. So we're either in a parallel universe, fine, sure, or whatever, but it, it does feel like he's liberally skewering sort of a lapdoggy sort of uh, figure that and and Trump has often been described as sort of being very eager to be liked by people who are actually rich and powerful when he just kind of pretends to be so. We saw an American president in Last of the Time Lords, didn't we? But I guess that would have been 2007, 2008. So this would presumably be the president after the one who's killed by the Toclophane. Yeah, Although technically is that, is that that's the done? president-elect, which is the dumbest thing the show ever did. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why the president-elect is there. Was his death undone at the end of Last of the Time Lords? I haven't watched it for quite a while. I can't remember. So it could be that no. first. No, it I believe uh, it's 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 just moments after his death right. that they sort of undo everything back to. But he still is murdered on that on global TV. So let's <laughs> just let's talk about the American politics then for a moment, because in the uh, season one Slovene story, that is literally Tony Blair who who who's killed off at Ten Downing Street. Mm-hmm. And there was, of course, still the ongoing backlash to George W. Bush's misadventures in Iraq. 
there was probably an intent that George W. Bush was the American president in the fictional universe when season one opens because it's Tony Blair uh, over in in England. And later on, we literally see Barack Obama as U.S. president in mm-hmm. the end of time. So if the novelization of Dalek had been written in 2005, you could read that president as George W. Bush, which would also make sense. Uh just for, for all those reasons that, that I mentioned. But writing in 2021, Donald Trump becomes the elephant in the room. You can't discuss uh, the rot at the heart of American culture without getting into Donald Trump and what he's done to all of us. The book isn't specifically set in 2012, is it? It just has a few years in the future. Mm-hmm. So it could be that, um, yeah, that, that it specifically is supposed to be 2016 to 2020. Yeah, sometime in there. It's also like it talks about the president liking women and and being a philanderer and things and it's like like every everything we get, uh, uh, you know, even that it's sort of the way his body is described is is clearly uh, Sherman taking swipes at Trump. Um, um, and, that, and that's fine. There's not nothing inherently wrong with that. It it does uh, it does establish sort of. Um, a bit more uh, because Trump is such an absurd figure, as Jason was saying, it is sort of, oh, well, that feels grounded, at least. And these books were originally going to be released last year as well, weren't they? So at that point, um, see, Trump hadn't lost the election, so it would have felt a little bit more current. Mm. Yeah. And of course, I Trump think... doesn't think he lost the election in the first place. So in his mind, yeah. his book is taking place <laughs> on the present day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. What can we talk about Adam? I mean, in the book, I read the Adam that we get in the book as on the autism spectrum. It seems to be what Shearman is going for. Um, like his his difficulty reading human emotions um, and understanding how to behave. That feels very much like someone with Asperger's or something like that. That's kind of what he's going for. And it's I mean, it's fine to do that, but. I mean, the whole point of Adam is that he's he's attractive to Rose, <laughs> and <laughs> almost nothing in Adam, as we have him in the book, seems like the kind of person who would be a a romantic rival for the Doctor in Rose's eyes. Um, so it's a really interesting choice, I think, to make to make Adam this sort of awkward, uh, clumsy sort of. As opposed to Adam on TV, who's not the most suave, but he's got some moves. I mean, he's flirting with Rose, and they're like, all that stuff has just gone from the book. I remember reading somewhere years ago that the original title for The Long Game, which is the next story in sequence, was The Companion Who Couldn't, or mm. I think the point of Adam is as a counterpoint to Rose to shows to show someone who's a bad companion who's going to try and use these future secrets for himself and make a, a big mess of things. That is Adam's true story, and you mm-hmm. can't think about Adam now in Dalek without thinking about the Adam of the long game, who is a complete failure and eventually meets a horrible fate back on Earth. This book, I think, almost gives Adam the benefit of the doubt. In the novelization, chapter 12, when he goes into the TARDIS and follows the Doctor and Rose, Shearman tells that from Adam's POV, and you don't get the sense from the way 
Shearman is right in that chapter that Adam is going to go on to be such a colossal failure in, in the very next story, which is how, mm-hmm. in fact, things turn out. So his Adam in the book bears almost no relation to uh, the Adam on television, and I'm mm-hmm. grateful for that because I don't think dedicating a whole episode to showing a companion that doesn't work is actually a great idea. They even brought out some romantic interest in the book um, because there's a point where Van Staten says you, you two go off and you can – uh, kiss and canoodle or whatever and it says uh, that neither of them look very happy about it so there isn't even the, I think on the TV episode there's a little bit of eye contact isn't there as if as if they might sort of fancy each other um, oh, the scene I, where they're they're in uh, his like workroom together uh, in the TV episode is is quite heavily flirtatious because mm-hmm. you do you have two attractive young people um, and they have chemistry with each other and yeah, yeah and that's just completely been removed uh, from the book because he's using Adam differently. I almost wonder if he kind of wished he could have just written Adam out of the story completely. Uh, but Adam needs to be there. And so he, he, he feels in many ways vestigial. Um, just as Jason was saying, you, you see Adam and his purpose is to be introduced only to be knocked down as unsuitable. Uh, and it does feel kind of like a waste of a storyline. <laughs> um, uh, to to do this sort of, but it, it's something that RTDs repeatedly does, and he's quite fascinated by the idea of the people who cannot hack being companions. He 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 comes back to that idea multiple times over the course of his run. Um, I think he's much more interested in it than I am, certainly. When I first watched series one, I was fairly convinced that Adam was going to come back, that he might be a sort of big bad at the end of the series <laughs> because of the way he'd got all that information uh, in the long game, which he'd sent backwards in time. And then he knew about the Daleks. When the trailer mm-hmm. comes on for, I don't know if it's the end of Boomtown or the end of the end of Bad Wolf and there's this big booming voice uh, saying they survived through me. And I <laughs> thought, I bet that's Adam. I bet he's, cause he knows about the Daleks. <laughs> I thought it was going to be some like Dalek version of him or cyborg version of him that, is, <laughs> that was off in the future. Uh, obviously it's quite wide of the mark, but uh, yeah, yeah, that was, that was my theory when, uh, when those episodes were going out. I thought the implication is that when Adam's mother snaps her fingers at the end of long game and this huge, enormous computer pops out of Adam's forehead, the implication is that he's going to be seized by the military and vivisected and cut up into little bits. So you can, there's no universe where you can imagine a happy ending for Adam anywhere. But again, with Shearman giving him sort of the benefit of the doubt and – almost making it a good thing that he's going off on the TARDIS at the end. You can imagine that if Shearman were to novelize the long game, Adam might even have a happy ending, maybe. Well, it's, it's a, it is hard, I think, to imagine the Adam of the book taking the actions that the Adam in the long game takes. Um, I, I don't think the Adam in the book is like a good companion necessarily, but I think he, whatever his problems might be, I think they'd be very different from the sort of self-serving um, and duplicitous actions that Adam takes in the long game. Having fairly recently watched the long game, it is, uh, yeah, as it's, there's a lot of time spent with just showing Adam screwing up again and again and making all these decisions <laughs> he really shouldn't make. Um, and it's such a, 
I know that RTD, I think, had some, like, mental justification. Now, like, um, you know, like, he kind of tried to make Adam seem less like a villain than he was. Uh, but he, he's just a douche. He's just a douche. Um, and, yeah, and it, it's... I, I, I come back to the idea that I, I honestly think that if Shearman had been told, you know, you don't need to include Adam in Dalek. It's, he's not important enough to Dalek because he does nothing in the book, really. He does reflect an, Alec, an aspect of the Dalek's personality, certainly, like the sort of fact that they remain silent and uh, aren't sort of emotional beings in some way. Um, that's there. But like you like you forget that he's there for huge sections of the story because he's just not engaging in any way. And his own interlude chapter comes up at at, at the very, very end. But the point of Adam in the long game is basically Gilligan's Island in space. You have Hmm. this character whose sole purpose is to prevent everybody else from getting home. And you didn't need Doctor Who to tell Gilligan's Island in space because we mm. already had Star Trek Voyager, where Janeway spent five <laughs> years blocking every possible way to get to get home. So we also have a special guest reading for this episode by the brilliant Conrad Westmas. Uh, this is um, a section from the chapter which is the Dalek creature's backstory. The child had had his grand revelation, and everyone seemed pleased with him. He now knew that happiness in life was a delusion too soon snatched away, and all the beings who laboured under that delusion were inferior and needed to be corrected by force. As a reward, he was taken to his new home. Home was a casing of battle armour, and how shiny it looked, and it was all for him. He couldn't quite fit within the interior cavity. He was assured that this was perfectly normal, All the children mutated differently, and no one ever was quite the right size or shape. Why, some were born like squids, some like spiders, some like creatures so grotesquely malformed it would seem heresy to give them a name at all. It was not a problem. There was a procedure for just this eventuality, and they took hold of all his extraneous limbs, and they hacked them off, and then they assessed which body parts were still jutting out and preventing the casing from shutting neatly, and they hacked them off too. For some reason, the child had been born with two good eyes when only one was deemed necessary, so they put the other out with a spike. The child was then reassured that all the surplus would not go to waste. It would be taken to the incubation vats, and there would provide tissue necessary for creation of more children, and he wanted to cry out with jubilation because he had already been of service to the Empire. He could not do so, though, as his vocal cords were in the process of being severed to make way for more reliable metal synth replacements. They fixed his flesh into final position with bolts and screws, and that was agony, and the agony was never going to go away. But it was good because the child had a second grand revelation that agony in life was more reliable and more constant than hope of happiness could ever be. They told him finally that his mutations were individual and therefore shameful. But now he would be absolved of sin. His individuality would be shut away within his metal shell and never again be seen. And they closed the casing upon him, and his world got so much smaller and so much tighter 
so tight that the child thought he wouldn't be able to breathe. But he needn't have been concerned. There was a tube inserted sharp into his lungs to take care of breaths for him. He looked out of his eye stalk and saw that they had been right. He was surrounded on all sides by lots of other children, his fellows in the great wars ahead, and he couldn't tell a single one apart. Thank you very much for that excellent reading, Conrad. Um, he also sent a note with the reading to say that he hopes Rob Sherman spent the royalties on some therapy, the sick puppy. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of notes, these new Target paperbacks are not out in the United States yet. They have not been released. The shipping date on Amazon keeps getting pushed back and back and back and back and back. So my copy of Dalek the Novelization comes courtesy of Trap One contributor Joe Ford, and he sent me a note along with that, which is much happier than uh, Conrad's note about <laughs> Rob <laughs> Shearman. And he also sent me a – Joe sent me a postcard that has Jodie Whittaker on it but with no face, and it's kind of disturbing. It's exactly the bookmark you want to put in a novelization like Dalek because it is a faceless Jodie Whittaker. It's – Kind of disturbing, like the book. Oh, yeah. That's Whereas, like, I uh, read the Kindle version and it was fine. <laughs> but I have not read any of the other new novelizations because Witchfinder is not out in the States yet and Crimson Horror are not out in the States yet. So I, I was fortunate that somebody sent me a copy of the book so I could participate. I have the I have the the previous ones on Kindle, but I've, I'm at the point now where I want to upgrade and have paperback copies of all of them for my Target collection. So Dalek is the first one that I've read of the new batch. Yeah, they've uh, they've, they've all been quite interesting. As I say, the, the the different directions that they've taken in in expanding the story. Um, so which which new series stories would you guys like to see novelized and expanded on next? If there is another wave of these. Hmm, that's an excellent question. Because um, there's two ways to approach this. One is to take a good story uh, with an interesting writer and and that you feel is either hindered by budget or time or something and give them sort of a second pass at it to do something, uh, you know, was a wider and deeper or whatever the phrase was for the new adventures. Uh, the other approach would be to take a story that just is bad or you think is bad but has potential um, and, and to be to be good or is just generally somehow important. Like in the first group of novelizations, for example, they did Christmas Invasion, um, which I don't think is a great story, but it's important because it's the first 10th Doctor story. So you could do something like The Eleventh Hour, or you could do something like The Woman Who Fell to Earth, um, just to sort of get that in there. But I would much rather see something that I think is almost good but sort of uh, maybe falls apart a little bit in some aspects. Um, I don't know. Maybe curse the black spot. Make that thing work. <laughs> I don't know if you can. <laughs> curse of the black spot. I would like to see stories that were submitted in one way by the writer and then had to be fundamentally transformed by the production team. So, for example, in The Lodger, the monster upstairs in The Lodger was scripted as Meglos. 
And the point is, mm. he confronts the doctor at the end. Doctor, I'm finally getting my revenge on you. And the doctor is all, I don't remember who you are. Mm. I would love to see that original version of The Lodger in print, which probably would, I think, I would enjoy. Once I learned that, I could have been Meglos on TV, and it wasn't because I'd already done a cactus-based life form the year before. That's the version of The Lodger that I want to see. So putting that in a novelization would definitely satisfy my fandom itch. It's when you learn things like that afterwards. Um, you know the bit in The Runaway Bride when the, the TARDIS is chasing the taxi with Donna in it down the motorway? Mm. And that was originally going to be in School Reunion. Um, it was going to be the first time that Sarah Jane saw the Doctor and the TARDIS again. Was the, the TARDIS sort of spinning along? Um, next to her car or taxi, and I just think, oh, that would have been amazing if uh, to see Sarah Jane's face, like kind of looking out the window and um, and seeing the TARDIS again. Oh, I think it's much better on the TV version. I think when she, and it's partly because Liz Slayton is an incredible actress, um, especially in like her appearances in the new series. When she sees the TARDIS and she actually looks terrified because she knows what it means, uh, it's wonderful. Um, it's a great. Uh, yeah, it's a really great moment. Um, I was thinking maybe one of one of the the two parters that could have been better and should be better. So like the Solarian two parter from season five, uh, uh, Hungry Earth, Cold Blood. Um, that story should be good and it isn't. Uh, but I would say even stronger case of that would be the Ganger two parter, the Almost mm. People. Mm. Um, that should be great. Like the ideas are there. It's a really cool idea about what makes what makes you human and independent and and volition and cloning and like essentially it's like Never Let Me Go, which is an amazing novel. Uh, you you could do something like that, and it just kind of bumps on the TV screen. It just does not work uh, as a TV story for a variety of reasons. I think it gets too fixated on like doing the monster chase in part two and stuff. Um, but you can do something incredible, I think, in a novel with that. Um, so that'd be my choice. Gang or two partner. And to give a more serious answer than I did before, <laughs> if you if you if you take Let's Kill Hitler, mm. Let's Kill Hitler is a very misleading title. It is not, in fact, a story about killing Hitler because he did that himself. <laughs> Let's Kill Hitler is Rivers' origin story. And there's this mm -hmm. massive honking visual quote to an unearthly child early in the book when River is still Mel's and is standing in front of the classroom talking to the camera. I would like to see Moffat go back and retell River's story in Let's Kill Hitler the book and maybe even give it a different title to make it to make it saleable. But I think Moffat had much more emotional investment in the character of River than he ever had in the character of the Doctor. I would like him to tell River's story in his own words, and Let's Kill Hitler is the perfect vehicle for that because that is her origin story. It's how she becomes who she is for, for the rest of her life. And I think for me, anything anything by Stephen Moffat, um, like you said, Eric, I, I, The Day of the Doctor is probably my favorite Doctor Who book. Um, I, I mean, it's, it's, a cr it's Cracker Jack. It is so yeah. good. Like, I'm thinking about it. I'm like, I need to read that again because it's been a couple of years and it's incredibly good. <laughs> 
it's the way he sort of he tells a lot of the story through the scenes that we didn't see in the TV mm. story, um, like like the Doctor taking the moment and, and how he actually did it and things like that. So yeah, some of, some of my favourite of his, Magician's Apprentice and and which is familiar uh, mm. to to novelise that, but School Reunion uh, just because I love the story so much, I, I'd love that one novelised as well. Yeah, and to throw in to throw in a Twelfth Doctor story because we haven't mentioned any any of those. Um, I think. Uh, I would I would love a very sort of uh, to do I think what maybe some of the Donald I think Donald Cotton did with some of his like if you did a sort of period feeling novelization of Haunting a Villa Diodati where it felt like a gothic romantic novel I think that could be amazing. Yes, definitely. Yeah, like um, I don't know if you've ever read um, Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell uh, by Susanna Clarke, but that's that's kind of uh, written in pastiche of that style. It's uh, brilliant. I love that book. There is a missing adventure uh, from Virgin in the 1990s called Monagra, which is nominally a Tom Baker, <laughs> Sarah Jane Smith story. And the first time I that, that I read that in 1995, most of the literary illusions sailed right over my head because I, w- I was too young but going back and reading it last month to match my tv pilgrimage that really it takes place large chunks of it take place in villa diodati and mm-hmm. mary shelley is a major character literally gets the last word in the book and there are three different versions of byron and yeah. marley the author stephen marley gives byron much more of the benefit of the doubt than is offered in the Maxine Alderton script, where Byron is quite a different uh, character altogether. So Doctor Who already told the Villa Diodati story um, in Monagro's trademark uh, purple prose and overwrought imagery. It would be interesting to go back and tell the story properly. Um, And then, of course, it could also be a novelization of a TV version of Frankenstein, even though we already have the original Frankenstein novel. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think there's just a lot of potential there. Um, And it's it's far and away my favorite Twelfth Doctor story. So uh, more of that done in an interesting style would be would be welcome. My favorite Thirteenth Doctor, Eric. Sorry, Thirteenth Doctor. God, I'm getting the numbers confused. (laughs) My favorite Capaldi story was Mummies on the Orient Express, but that is so traditional that I think you'd be hard-pressed to make it into an experimental novelization. I mean, you could finally – the novelization of the that could finally explain what the hell Gus is. Uh, True. Which would be nice. Uh, one of those sort of weird lurking mysteries that was meant to be brought back and resolved but just never got – they never got around to it. One of those dangling Stephen Moffat plot threads. Mm-hmm. There's a similar one in Under the Lake Before the Flood, isn't there, where somebody makes references at the war minister or something like that they talk about. And it seems like it's foreshadowing something. Minister for war, maybe. And it seems like a piece of foreshadowing that's never, never followed up as well. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, it starts in season one where you have Jack talking about his missing memories. <laughs> Yeah. Like, well, that never comes up again. <laughs> Probably never will now. <laughs> nope. Uh, <laughs> nope. 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 For me, the lasting memory of Dalek is going to be a novelization that almost entirely ignores what happens on TV, 
retells a lot of it, but is much more interested in going off and telling its own set of stories and Sherman's own voice. And as I was reading the book, I was absorbed by this, and I enjoyed it, mm-hmm. and I appreciated what he was trying to do. And especially the chapter where Maya Klein completely loses the emotional connection with her kid. Uh, you know, as I have a kid who is fast approaching adolescence, and in my mind, she's still four years old, that resonated with me. And Dalek as a book is not a novelization of the TV story at all. It's telling its own story. I like the story that it was. Um, I might have been the only person who felt that way. And I know that Keith also took a dig at it when you guys were recording Crimson Horror. So maybe mm-hmm. I was the only person that it worked for. But I'm certainly glad that it did work for me. And I know that images from this book are going to be staying with me for a very, very, very long time to come. No, I, I really enjoyed this one. Uh, and Keith's problem was that he felt like the it killed the pace of the the sort of the chase through um, through Van Staten's base um, of, of trying to escape through the Daleks floor by floor because each chapter that, that sort of goes off and does a backstory it just just focuses on that backstory doesn't it and doesn't doesn't sort of cut between the action or anything like that but I think because uh, you know the story so well and as you say it's it's accessible at any time that that didn't really bother me. I, I also think if he were, is worried about the the pace being killed he should go back and watch that story the pace is pretty shot <laughs> as it's presented it is it is not actually it's season one they really didn't know how to pace that stuff yet it feels at times it feels rushed and at times it feels very drawn out yeah i think i think a lot of series one sort of feels that way now doesn't it although at mm-hmm. the time felt very compared to old doctor who felt really really pacey and uh, um it's yeah tv's evolved even in the years since it came back mm-hmm yeah, significantly. You look at, especially going on the writers' room, having we're just about to finish season one now, uh, or series one, I suppose, um, and seeing the difference between that and then like series four, but then certainly just how much content is crammed into like every Stephen Moffat era episode versus how much is in a standard RTD era episode. <clears throat> it's just wild how much fuller those forty-five minutes feel uh later on once they once they get the hang of sort of how much you can do in that time span remember the last time that i went back to watch the doctor dances this was probably about five or six years ago so when i went to watch it back moffat was the current showrunner the doctor dances literally stops every five minutes to re-explain the plot and bring you up to date and it's very very comfortable storytelling Whereas, and that's a Moffat script, when Moffat becomes showrunner, he never, ever tries to do that at all. Then he just throws you in and good luck figuring it out. And the storytelling style of the show just changed so much between Davies and Moffat. But now that we're back in the Chibnall era, Chibnall has much more returned to that linear type of of storytelling. Um, So when you watch Chibnall's first season with the Doctor and Three Companions, there's very much a season one, 1963-64 vibe, where half the story is the characters walking around, slowly exploring sets and narrating the plot to each other, which, bless him, that was never anything that Stephen Moffat was going to do. Mm -hmm. So the show's kind of come full circle, and I can't believe it's now been more than 16 years since, since the revival. That's an incredibly long lifespan. Yeah. 
Definitely, yeah. It feels feel very lucky uh, having having lived through the wilderness years and never thinking it was going to come back, and then it coming back and worrying that it wasn't going to um, it wasn't going to be successful enough. It's uh, it's great that we're sitting here all these years later with uh, another series to look forward to before the end of 2021. Yes, with the best companion yet. Damn. So you mentioned the writers' room, Eric. Um, where else mm. can our listeners find you on the internet? Um, you can find me on Twitter if you if you do that. Uh, my my name on Twitter is uh, SJC Austinite. That's S J C A U S T E N I T E. Uh, after Jane Austen, not the city of Austin. Um, but yeah, there's the Writers Room, which I co- a podcast I co-host with uh, Kyle Anderson of the Nerdist, where we have gone through. All of the classic series of Doctor Who talking about the scripts, and we've also done The Outer Limits and Sapphire and Steel, and now we're in modern Doctor Who talking about uh, the show via the writers and the stories they wrote, sort of focusing on the writing as opposed to the performance of directing or things. Uh, I also co-host The Real McCoy, um, which is a podcast about the seventh Doctor. We have done all the televised stories and have moved on to the uh, New Adventures era, um, which is interesting uh but yeah those are the sort of places you can find me uh out and about in the doctor who universe online i am on twitter at doctor who novels dr who novels there are two twitter accounts with the same name Uh, mine is dr who rather than doctor who spelled out i have since late october 2020 been going through the classic series uh pilgrimage i started with parts one and two of unearthly child it is now over eight months later. <clears throat> Last night, I watched Image of the Fendal parts one and two, and I was completely bewildered and bothered, but not bewitched. And this is much, <laughs> much worse than I remembered it being. And this is right after watching The Invisible Enemy, which is probably the worst Doctor Who story since The Dominators. So as much as I loved and enthused nightly over the Pertwee era and the Hinchcliffe era, I have suddenly reached a very rough stretch in the pilgrimage, but I am not losing faith, and tonight will be part three and four of Image of the Fendal, and I'm rapidly approaching the Eric Sayward years. So you'll be able to watch Jason's brain uh, melt into pudding (laughs) over the coming weeks and months as I go through the pilgrimage. I do not have a podcast yet let alone four but i will say i am currently producing for trap one uh, part one of a retrospective on the new adventures to which eric just alluded <clears throat> i have finished recording most of the segments for part one which is going to be covering the 1991 books the four time worm books and i have some very interesting uh guest panelists and interviews and uh readings and that is being assembled. That will hopefully be out at some point before uh, the next month goes by. And then I plan, Mark, on doing a few more of those for you. I'd like to do a four-part <laughs> documentary series on the new adventures, which have a very profound influence on my life. And part one of that will be coming to Trap One very soon. And while I don't host my own podcast yet, please watch my space on Twitter. You may be seeing some interesting news coming up um, again in the next few weeks and months fantastic i can't wait for that uh, new adventures retrospective uh thank you very much for producing those uh you can follow trap one on twitter at trap one underscore and i'm at quark mcmalice you can find all our previous episodes at trap one.podbean.com 
uh, where you can also leave us a review or wherever else you get your podcasts if you're feeling generous and you've enjoyed this episode. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye. Toodles. Good night now. (laughs) 